0: John chapter 11. We have been in this uh, account of uh, the death and resurrection of Lazarus for several weeks now. and So I think it's appropriate to go back to the beginning and just read this again. So I'm going to start right in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 44. So John 11, verse 1. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to return there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let's pray again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet he shall live. And that everyone who lives and believes in Jesus Christ will never die. I pray that we would believe these things, not just with our mouths, not just with mental assent, but that we would believe this in our heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. When Christ our Master comes... He calls for us. He comes to us in His word and ordinances, that is, word and sacrament, the ordinary means of grace. He calls us by them. He calls us to Himself. He calls thee in particular. He calls for thee by name, and if He call thee, He will comfort thee. Matthew Henry published um, those words in his exposition of the Old and New Testaments sometime between 1708 and 1710. When Christ our Master comes, He calls for us. He comes to us through the, the ordinary means of grace, through the preached word and the sacrament of the ordinances of the table and baptism. He calls us by them. He calls us to Himself, and He's calling you in particular. He's calling you by name, and if He calls you, He will comfort you. Psalm 27, verses 7 and 8 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. And as we saw last week, He comforted Mary's grieving here in verse 32, when when she came to where Jesus was and saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. And while she says the exact same words that Martha said back in verse 21, the difference that we can so clearly see is her grief. She is overcome with sorrow. She she is praying again through tears and and anguish and she fell at his feet as a a humble, heartbroken mourner pleading with Jesus for answers. Martha, her sister, may have had a little bit of an edge, at least a, a very pragmatic attitude. Possibly there was a little bit of an accusatory tone when she said her words, maybe. But clearly Mary is worshiping and has fallen at his feet, submitting to his will. So as we finished up last week, as we were working through these verses, we looked at these two sisters. And back in Luke chapter 10, Mary had, had sat at the master's feet while he had taught, But Martha had spent that time kind of indignantly serving back in the house. Here, in this passage, when Martha still seems to be at least a little bit indignant, Mary, once again, is at the Master's feet. I hope you can see here that this is another example for us. That that if we put ourselves at the feet of Jesus, if we submit to His teaching. We receive His instruction, especially in a day of peace. When times are good, then, then when you find yourself in a day of tribulation and trial, it'll be so much easier to cast yourselves at the feet of the Master with the expectation that He will hear your prayers, that He will comfort your heart, and that He will give you hope. I said last week, still true this week, Our Master is good and kind and loving in times such as this, even in times such as this. Mary fell at his feet, and he saw her, and he heard her affliction. This is God's pattern. He heard Hagar's weeping when she and her son Ishmael had been rejected. Back in, back in Genesis chapter 21, verse 17, it says, And God heard the voice of the, bo- of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Fear not, for God has heard. Think of the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 3. Verses seven through nine, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites and the Perizzites. The Hivites, the Jebusites, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, God says. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. God sees, God hears, and God delivers. The setting has changed here in the New Testament, but the affliction has not. And when she casts herself at the feet of Jesus in worship and honor... Mary is proclaiming her submission to his lordship and her trust in his power. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, in falling at his feet and proclaiming this, Mary has made a confession that is deep, um, maybe even a little deeper than Martha's confession back in verse 27 when she said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That is a good and important confession. But she still has struggles with doubt, especially when he asks to roll the stone away or orders the stone to be rolled away. But Mary bowed and confessed, as Romans 14.11 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. That was Mary. And every tongue shall confess to God, if you had been here. And as Jesus observes her grief and that of those with her, he wept as well. This is Christ's tender care and compassion. This is where we pick up the story here. Look at verses 33, 34, and 35. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus's response to to seeing all of this weeping, or all of the tears, verse 33 says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Or the King James here says, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. It's kind of difficult to translate this actually into English, especially this emotion here that says that he was, he was deeply moved or he groaned. A literal translation of these words might say something like, He was grim in spirit. It's not mere sadness. There's an anger mixed in. There's even an outrage in his soul. Jesus is filled with an angry grief that moves him to tears. And this emotion, this isn't new to Jesus. This isn't a new emotion for him. Um, While he may not have been moved to tears this time, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, recounts a similar situation or a similar emotion. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And as they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. That that angry grief, that's not an emotion that we we commonly associate with Jesus, meek and mild, right? That's not an emotion that we typically associate with him. In fact, our society... Likes to remind us that Jesus preached a, a message of love and care and tolerance. And even right here in this passage, we, we read of his love for Mary and her sister Martha and, and for Lazarus. It's, it's actually mentioned several times. But now Jesus is outraged to the point of weeping at what he is seeing. Is it because he's grieving for Mary? Is it because he's grieving for Martha, the the sisters who had lost their brother? Is he sharing in their grief? Well, certainly he is. Some have suggested that the other mourners there were professional mourners, at least some of them probably were, who had put on a show of weeping and wailing. Is he angry and outraged at the spectacle that 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 they are displaying? That they're showing those around them? Possibly. That very well could be some of his anger. Or is he simply weeping over Lazarus' death? We can be sure of this. This right here is a good example of what John had explained all the way back in his introduction that the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among men, Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled because he was surrounded by death. This right here, at this moment, would not be the time to say to Jesus, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Even though that's from the New Testament, Paul writes those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here is death's sting. It's right here at Lazarus' tomb. Here seems to be death's victory. Look at what he doesn't say when he sees their weeping. Look at what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, stop crying. He doesn't say, let not your hearts be troubled. He will say those things later when he, when he predicts Peter's denials and his own death. He'll comfort their hearts so that their joy may be full. He will say to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 20, he will say, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. But here, with Mary and Martha and this crowd that are here, He just weeps with them. He just weeps with them. I believe that Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled and even weeping because He has compassion on His people. And and such was really the destiny of the Son of Man. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one who, uh, from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus wept. These are human emotions that Jesus was experiencing. I should say these are common emotions that he was experiencing, maybe. But they're common because we're made in the image of God. Do you remember his reaction when he heard of the death of John the Baptist? His cousin and the forerunner of the Messiah? Matthew 14 tells us um, when John died, his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He grieved privately. But he also had a a kind of a similar angry grief as he he lamented over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, he says. There's a grief and a tears in his voice as he laments for his people. This is because through all of this, Jesus is really angry. He is outraged. He is really grieving over sin and death. I, I don't think here in John chapter 11 that Jesus is simply weeping because he lost his friend Lazarus. You remember that that he has made it his purpose to wait until Lazarus died, and then he was specifically going to go and wake him up. And then he had to explain to the disciples, he's not sleeping, he's dead. Let's go to him. If that were the only reason that he were weeping, he probably wouldn't have been weeping at all. He could have just said, "Hey, hey, wait a minute, watch this. But not only is he experiencing a a common human emotion or maybe several common human emotions and, and identifying with his friends, not only is he truly man, he's also truly God. And he is outraged at the effects of sin and death because sin and death are an affront to his holiness. Sometimes we forget that the, that wrath is God's justice on display. That wrath is God's justice on display. Jesus was clearly outraged when he cleansed the temple back in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. When he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. He was outraged. Jesus was outraged. He was deeply moved and greatly troubled by what he saw. He wasn't simply overcome with sadness. He was also angry. Genesis chapter 6 verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart when he saw the extent of the wickedness of mankind. It grieved him to his heart. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 27 says, behold the name of the Lord comes from afar Burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. Picture that? A stream reaching up to your neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction. to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Or think of the the final verse of the book of Isaiah, the very last verse, says this, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. God's wrath is His justice on display. For the wages of sin is death. And the reason Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled by what he saw is because he is truly God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And as Psalm chapter 7 verses 11 to 13 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. We are but sinners in the hands of an angry God. But before God will pour out his wrath, before God's justice will be displayed, we need to be reminded that Jesus loves Martha and her sister, and Lazarus, and that his love does not stop with this one family. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest in the flesh. We could see him. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live Through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled to the point of weeping over sin and death, and he himself is going to die that we who believe in him might live. He himself is going to die that we might live. And of course, in verses 36 and 37 here, after asking them where they laid him and weeping, the Jews, really, we see a couple of responses to his care and his compassion, responses to his tears. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You can either recognize God's love when seeing Christ, seeing even His anger and weeping, seeing His grief. You can either recognize His love, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the first sentence of that verse says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You can either recognize that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can recognize that to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to be called children of God. Or, as verse 37 here says, you can reject Him and question His goodness and His kindness and His compassion and His care. Question His love. The second sentence of 1 John 3.1 says this, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. There are two responses ultimately to Christ's compassion, either recognition, which leads to repentance, or rejection. We shouldn't miss the fact that our narrator here, John, in compiling and telling us this story, he connects Jesus' weeping with that of Mary and those who came with her, as well as his request to be brought to the tomb. He wept after he said, where did you lay him? Jesus' emotion is both from his human nature and his divine nature. This is the the Word become flesh, dwelling with His people, weeping with those who weep, yet He's also light, living in the darkness. And we're about to see that the darkness has not overcome the light. He is here sharing in their grief, and He's outraged over sin and disbelief. And at this moment, the Lord, the the Master, he He saw not only what Mary and the Jews saw, He saw the physical death, but he also saw what God saw. He saw the spiritual death and and decay and the effects of sin on humanity. He saw not only the decay of the body, but also the decay of their souls. But the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so now Jesus, finally, is going to give us a foretaste of the removal of the sting of death, Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a foretaste of death's defeat but it's just an appetizer. You're not supposed to fill up on the appetizers, by the way. This is just an appetizer. And in verse 38, as he approaches the tomb, Jesus again kind of bristles with emotion. He's deeply moved again. I like how some of the other commentators have have described his approach to the tomb here as he's walking up. One of them, a man named Herman Ritterboss, which is a great name if you're a theologian. Herman Ritterboss says, he strides to the tomb, not in sovereign apathy of a great outsider, but as one sent into the world by the Father, as the advocate who has entered human flesh and blood. John Calvin says that he approaches the tomb like a wrestler preparing for a contest. And Daniel Wallace, I think, has the best sentence. He says, no wonder he groans again, that, that deeply moved. No wonder he groans again, for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes. A cave with a stone rolled against it. The details of the tomb there is a cave with a stone rolled against it. I think those details are important for three quick reasons. First is that archaeology has supported these details as accurate. They have found um, other tombs dating from this area that were similar to this. This is really happening, in other words. This is uh, written in a real-sounding description. It rings true, and not just to us, but even to John's original readers. But secondly, Lazarus is about to walk out of the tomb under his own power. He's not going to climb up with the help of some friends. Again, that means that this account rings true. But then third, and I think this is specifically what John intended for his readers to see, it is a cave with a stone rolled in front of it. Jesus' own body will soon be put into a very similar tomb. Mark chapter 15 verses 45 and 46 describes Jesus' tomb like this. In fact, um, When he learned from the centurion that that Jesus was dead, um, he granted the corpse to Joseph. This is Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. There's a connection between what's going on at Lazarus and what's going to happen with Jesus. And then Jesus makes two commands here. The first is really in verse 39. He says, take away the stone. And as he says this, he says it with authority. It's a command. He says this as one who has the authority over sin and death. It's actually kind of a, a turf and, and even almost gruff command. It's as if he's, it's as if he's had enough weeping. He's had enough mourning. He's had enough crying. And in that frustration, he commands the servants probably, or maybe some of the young men that are there, he commands them to take away the stone. To the casual observer, um, maybe somebody who's watched too many movies, to the casual observer, this might look like a bereaved friend who's unwilling to believe that Lazarus is dead. I want to see him, is almost what this looks like at first. But that's not why Jesus issues this command. And, and Martha, ever the sort of practical, pragmatic sister, she responds by saying in the King James Version, Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. She's blunt. The Old English makes it a little blunter. But she believes two things about Lazarus. He's dead. He's dead. That's just his decaying, stinking corpse in that cave. He's dead. Don't roll away that stone. He's dead. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. He says, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, absent from flesh and present with God. There's a sense of pleading in her answer to this command. Lord, please don't do this to us. He is dead. The last memory that we want of Lazarus is to smell him. We don't want to see this. Please, don't do this to us. Yet she also believes, secondly, she she had emphatically stated that the other thing that she knew about Lazarus was this. She had said this very clearly. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knows these things about Lazarus. She knows that he is dead, and she knows that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha is assuming what all the mourners around here are assuming. Lazarus is dead. And while they are right about Lazarus, They're dead wrong about what Jesus was going to do. They are wrong about Jesus who had said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's what he's saying to her in verse 40. When he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? I told you to believe. I told you that God would be glorified to this, through this. This is why Jesus came in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lazarus' death was an occasion for the glory of God to be revealed. And of course, he's, he's calling on her to believe in Him to the one who is, believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Like Peter, she has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And like Peter, she doesn't quite understand the depths of that confession. And so they took away the stone. They took away the stone. And as Jesus prayed he once again turns, really kind of directs everyone's attention to the glory of God. Look at this prayer, it's kind of unique. Father, I thank you that, I have, that you have heard me. <clears throat> I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. In the Gospel of John, um, it says there that he lifted up his eyes and prayed that prayer. In John's gospel, lifting up eyes is closely connected with the work of Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? That crowd was something like 5,000 families. Jesus was about to do a work. He wasn't really, it wasn't plan B, right? Plan A, Philip, how can we feed these people? I have no idea. Okay, I'll come up with something. That wasn't what he was doing. He was asking Philip to believe in him, right? He lifted up his eyes and saw the crowd. He was about to work. In John chapter 4, verse 35, he gives the commission. Essentially, he says to them as they're by the well... And the woman had gone into town and told everybody, "Uh, come and meet this man who, who told me all that I ever did. They come out to the well and Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 4, verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's about to do the work of the reaping of souls. And the last time that Jesus will use this phrase in John's gospel, lifting up his eyes, is in chapter 17, verse 1, when he begins a prayer. And he says, when, John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 3, and he says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lift up your eyes and see that the crowd's coming toward him, uh, they're coming for the bread of life. Lift up your eyes and see the need to bring the gospel to the nations. Lift up your eyes and see that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And as Jesus prays this, do you see how he begins? He begins with thanksgiving. And this is a a unique prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Had he already prayed? Had he already prayed for Lazarus? Maybe it doesn't say. I thank you that you have heard me. Had he already asked God to raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he need to ask God to raise Lazarus from the dead? I think that's the point of what he's saying here. I think the point is is that he's thankful for the plan of God. He's thankful that this is all the plan of God. (laughs) Remember, back in verse 11... Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is his plan all along. I'm going to go try to awaken him. No, I'm going to wake him up. This is God's plan. He's thankful that as a result of the communion of the Father and Son, that this is their plan, as a result of their covenant of redemption, some of those standing around here will believe They will believe that Jesus is the Christ. They will believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is actually the second command in this paragraph that Jesus issues here. The first is the command to roll away the stone. And even before the last day, even before the the great day of the Lord, And in anticipation of the day of the Lord, Jesus' command proved to be an instance where the dead heard the voice of the Son of God and sprang to life. And he had told them specifically that he was going to do this. Do you remember in chapter 5? In John chapter 5, verse 25 to 29 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here Many have said that on this point, if Jesus had not specified Lazarus' name, all of the tombs would have given up their dead. Everyone would have come out. If he had just said, come out, they would have all come out. This is the power of God for salvation. I want to read Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones and he led me around them and behold there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold they were very dry and he said to me son of man can these bones live and I answered "Oh Lord God you know and he said to me prophesy over these bones he's telling him to preach Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and will cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is our future. In trusting I am, in trusting that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, though we shall die, yet shall we live our illness whatever it is that will eventually kill all of us or each of us our illness will not ultimately lead to death it will lead to resurrection death will no longer have dominion over us Beloved, this, this is why we trust in Romans chapter 6 verses 5 to 11 for if we've been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus had said, I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus was raised to walk in in newness of life in Christ. We we can't help but compare this to the resurrection of Jesus later. Chapter 20, just a couple of verses, 6 and 7. Simon Peter came following John and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Clearly, Jesus' resurrection was unique, yet it was similar to this. Lazarus was raised to to a a restoration of his mortal life, but he he was bound and blinded and needing help. Jesus left the grave clothes behind, and although his body bore the bore the marks and the scars of mortality of his flesh. He was raised in glory. And those who hear Jesus' shout on the last day will be made like him. John will write in his first letter, many years after these events, he will write as an old pastor writing to his beloved children, he says. He says, and now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Lazarus's resurrection is simply a a shadow of Christ's resurrection. It is a, a glimpse at what is going to happen in just a few chapters in John's gospel, when all sin and death will be defeated. And so we are called in the meantime as we wait for Christ's return. We're called to abide in him and to long for his appearing. And so when we when we take of the bread and the cup and proclaim his death, we do so longing for his return. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when when Christ returns, when all of the sin and death will be finally done away with. Father, we are confident and praise you that even now, as you have defeated through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, defeated sin and death. And our hope is in you, in Christ, in his work on the cross, that we have been indwelt with your spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Lord, we long for the day when we we can acquire possession of it, when we can be in glory with you. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your love and care and compassion. We even thank you for your your indignant anger at sin. Because through that, through Jesus becoming our um, propitiation, we live. We praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.